This is the Wellness Puzzle Podcast with Andrew Jobling, author, speaker, educator, entrepreneur, and AFL player. Join Andrew as he continues his lifelong journey as a student of human behavior. This podcast will help you live your passion, explore your potential, step into your power, and embrace your possibilities. Embrace your possibilities. possibilities. Hello, Andrew Jobling. Welcome to the Wellness Puzzle Podcast for another adrenaline-filled week. This one, I'm about to speak to Yair Kellner, and this is a man I've known for probably about 15 years, and I didn't know when I met him that he was absolutely an adventure junkie. In fact, the last thing he says in this podcast is, it's never too late to have a happy childhood, which I love. From the age of five years old, he started, because of his dad's encouragement, hiking and climbing and doing outdoor stuff and he fell in love with the outdoors he fell in love with nature he fell in love with the thrill of exploring and adventure and over the next 61 years yep 61 years he's done all sorts of stuff he's climbed Everest he's ridden bikes through glaciers he's done numerous dog sledding expeditions in the arctic and polar areas he's done all sorts of incredible stuff and out of that you can imagine that he's got some pretty powerful lessons. And he's going to tell us a story about a journey on an Iditarod Trail invitational event that he was in. And let me tell you, this is a powerful, engaging, compelling podcast with some very, very powerful lessons. None more important than it's never too late to have a happy childhood. So sit back, relax, enjoy my conversation with Yair Kellner. It's great to see you, yeah. How are you, mate? I'm really good. Thank you, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see your face. I can see you. No one else can see you, just me, because you're on a Zoom screen. Everyone else is listening to those sultry tones of, yeah, Kellner. It's so good to see your face. You're a rugged man. You just tell me you just got back from a 100K ride up some incredibly steep hills, and you had to at times get off and push up a loaded bike up the hills. So, mate, you just love it, don't you? You love your adventure. I do. I remember my bike mechanic telling me that if it was really crappy weather and insane condition, he knows at least one person who will be out there riding, and then he'll have to clean my bike. <laughs> so. And we'll talk more about this later, but you're currently training for the Hunt 1000, which That's you've right. sent me some information on, an unsupported bicycle journey through the Australian Alps. It goes from Melbourne to Canberra. It's 1,000 kilometres with 23,000-metre climbs. So wow. it goes through all the Victorian Alps and then through all the Kosciuszko National Park. 23,000 metres. How tall is uh, Mount Everest? It's it's three times the height of Everest. There you go. Okay. Uh, let's just go back a few years. Let's just sure. wander back a few years. I met you, and I don't even know when it was. It was. I can't least, remember that far back. I'm it's got to be old. at least 10 years ago, I reckon, oh, when, probably when you were that. teaching a course, and I that's was in right. that course, and that's where we met, and we just connected because we're both... That's right. A little Very bit, well connected. We, yep. We're both a little bit crazy. Yep. I think... We were both on the crazy end of the spectrum, and you're probably a little bit further along than I am, and after we hear some of your stories today, I think people listening to this are going to agree that you're definitely on the outer spectrum I've got of a crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you have, you're certified. Well, I don't know if we'd go that far, but, mate, you just love, you live for outdoors, don't you? You live for, Absolutely. You live for nature. All you forms. live under a rock if you could. And really, it all started for you 
at the age of five as I'm reading your bio. That's right. Your My bio. dad used to take me out. Tell us about how that love, this absolute obsession with nature and outdoors and hiking and bike riding, how did it all start for you? I think when my dad took me, we still in the days before all this fancy equipment. So we used to have two blankets and we used to collect little rocks and tie them together to make a little tent. But I just felt very much at home in there, especially with the animals and just feeling that it's not just about humans, this world and, you know, the whole issue of how to get into a space in the environment where you really feel the weight of the space. Nowadays, it's called indigenous time and it doesn't mean indigenous as in traditional people. It means the time of the location. So if you go out in nature, for example, you slow down, you calm down, you, your senses are much more attuned if you're that way inclined. And it just I just felt it very strongly inside me, and I haven't stopped in 61 years, so it must have made a good impression. 61 years, mate, that's awesome. And just give us a bit of an overview of some of the things you have done in those 61 years because some of the stuff you've done is pretty mind-blowing and then we want to get into the mind of a man that does this sort of stuff because i mean i think that's the key thing is the mindset and we are going to talk specifically about a couple of things or one story that i remember you telling me about quite a few years ago which was how you're still alive today that's right. It's a testament of your mindset and your resilience and i think that's a story that i really want to share but give us a bit of a high level overview mate of the last 61 years okay well, obviously, I started with hiking based on the you know initial experiences, and as I said at the time, you know you, you had to sew a plastic bag as a bivy bag, so you woke up in the morning with your sleeping bag completely soaked, and you believed that that was very good technical advance. Uh, all that nonsense is behind us now, but at the time there wasn't. You couldn't go to an auto shops because they didn't even exist. Yep. But from there, I graduated to high altitude climbing, mainly in the Himalayas. Been on quite a few expeditions. How far there. did you get in the Himalayas? I got to over 7,000 meters in quite a few mountains. And I used to lead tracking groups there and mainly involved with expedition logistics and setup. I was part of the first live broadcast from Everest. Oh, wow. Um, in around the 80s i can't remember the exact date but that was the first time we had a microwave link from the summit to everest view hotel which is just above namchi bazaar and from there down to Kathmandu, and from up there to the cbs network in the us involved quite a few satellites um that was quite interesting logistically just to hold some stupidly heavy equipment i mean people kind of nowadays used to gopros and all the lightweight stuff but the the question mate is who carried it up yep you carried it up well, with Sherpas also, not just myself. <laughs> I mean, you know, people are much fitter and, and more attuned to the environment than myself. But we carried, you know, some very big packs with lots of gear. Nowadays, it's just magic, all the lightweight gear and, you know, the GoPros and the whatever, even the 4K cameras or 6K. But at the time, it was quite a big achievement to have it basically in real time involve five satellites, if I remember correctly. Yeah, as if getting uh, to that altitude's not an achievement yeah. enough, trying to drag up equipment oh, that you can yeah. transmit it back down again. That's right. And then I sort of, I used between, between leading groups and expeditions, I used to just kind of make little notes of nice summits that I used to see along the way and thought on my layover, I'll just have a go and run up some of those steep hills and um, managed to do quite a few of them actually over the years. And then I went back climbing to New Zealand um, and then I did, for polar expeditions wow uh, with dog sledding north pole and i worked in antarctica i worked for five years for the antarctic division it's a federal government and did a lot of stuff there 
And basically then the bikepacking or fat biking came into the scene. It was fairly basic at the time, you know, it was just big steel frames and very fat tires. But, um, you know, it just felt like the right tool for me. You know, like you could get anywhere, you could roll over anything. And if you couldn't do it, you basically, the snow stopped you, you flew over the handlebar and you made what's called a snow angel, which basically is Face first. an impression of you. Yeah, it's like in the cartoons, you know, and you kind of go through a wall or something and you just get that silhouette. And I just kept going with that. Um, as I got older, some of the climbing became a bit more challenging. It's, I used to do a lot of ice climbing and that's very technical and I guess to some extent quite dangerous because you climb on some very dodgy waterfalls and things and um yeah i just got a little bit wiser as i got older then i found out that with the fat bike you can load a lot of gear and do multiple day expeditions and started doing that sort of all over the world so alaska iceland a lot of in australia new zealand so it seemed like the right tool for the job for me and basically it allows you to carry enough gear and just stay for you know a couple of weeks three four weeks whatever you can carry all your supplies. I don't carry that much food, but I carry enough coffee. Of course, the important stuff. Of course. I'm not carrying the espresso machine anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Were you waiting for them to come up with the mini espresso oh, uh, machine, yeah, right? It's, it's fully catered, of course it uh, is, you know, by the wombats and the kangaroos. Yeah, yeah, you could use wombat droppings. I mean, they make yeah. a coffee out of monkey droppings, don't they? That's in- right. Uh, in in, in uh, Bali, I had some. Yeah. Tasted like shit. <laughs> <laughs> well then wombat koala droppings mate that's right <laughs> enough hot water a bit of powdered milk mate and you're all good to go and a lot of imagination a lot of right. imagination and a lot of toilet paper well you probably don't need it's toilet right. paper wow what a journey you've been on for the last 61 years it's incredible look there's a couple of questions obviously that spring into my mind the first one is what do you get out of this what is it for you in your heart that drives you to want to do this more and more and more I think the biggest thing is perspective because, you know, we so live in a human's world and everything is, you know, built up and, you know, everybody's got their little neurotic dramas and it's all every, every small thing is a big thing. When you're actually out there, you realize you're very small and insignificant in a positive way. Yep. And also it teaches you that you're far more resilient because you need to adapt to conditions. It doesn't matter if you like it to be snowing or raining or freezing or hot, you know, if there's difficult terrain or something or mountain climbing, you know, you reach areas where you just have to backtrack and all your effort of going up, you have to go back down and try again. It just teaches you perspective. And the other thing is just the incredible wisdom of animals and understanding that they have their own ways. They're different nations. They're not below us. You know, they're just different cultures and they have their own different sets of rules and communication and language. And it's perfectly possible to communicate with animals. It's just that they don't speak English very well. But I remember talking to people and they said they're traveling overseas and the people don't speak English. And I'd ask them how many of them speak the native language of the culture they're visiting. The answer was usually zero. You know, so it's a form of arrogance that I think being in the wilderness gets shed of you very quickly. Mm, That's awesome, mate. And, I mean, you mentioned resilience a few times. So the next question I have is, I mean, what is it now that you've learnt and you've overcome and you can bring back to apply into your life as a human being living in a we are living in a westernized society what have you learned that you've been able to apply and it's helped you in every area of your life i think that every culture you know being west east or as i said the animal world has their own wisdom and it's good to amalgamate them 
you basically take the best of everything and you learn that what could appear to be a drama is not really a drama. Of course, there are difficulties and challenges all over the place, but usually, you know, the, the smaller your world, the bigger the drama, and the bigger your world, the smaller the drama. I think that's that's great. That's an awesome perspective. Yeah, yeah. Because we do, don't we? We get into, we get stuck in our own little world, and every that's little right. thing that is such a drama, drama, drama. How do we do this? And when you think about the world, particularly at the moment. You know, what's That's going right. on around the world and we look at our lives, we go, well, actually, my problems aren't that big a deal. So being out there in that wilderness, that big, wide, beautiful world, yeah, I can actually imagine how it can help you, that perspective piece um, you talked I, about. I think, Andrew, that, you know, dramas or, you know, difficult situations for people are real. I'm not discounting it or belittling it. I'm just saying that the bigger perspective you have, the more you can put it in perspective and realise that, you know, there's always going to be situations where you're perfectly capable of surviving and managing very well, except you've never been exposed to them. Yep. So your your reference points are, are usually very limited. Yep. And the more you're in situation which actually put you in perspective so far as your insignificance, again, in a positive way, but also the fact that you need to solve problems that you never envisaged, just helps you understand that you have far more inside you than just being in an urban space or locked up in an office or whatever. You know, the, those daily dramas, they usually, road rage is a great example, you know, where people just completely lose it over some stupid thing. And, you know, you think, just calm down, you know, you'll be five minutes later. So what's the big deal? Yeah. I've noticed that, mate, about you. You're a very relaxed person, but you have been in some, you know, when you put yourself out in the harshness of the wilderness and you're putting yourself in extreme harshness, right? You're talking mm. about arctic circles and alaska and you're talking about everest you're talking about incredibly harsh mm. natural situations where and i know there are times when you've had to survive your life depended right. on it and i think when you're in that situation well you've got to be solution oriented or you're dead and that's where resilience comes through whereas i think these days or when you know for a lot of people that don't put themselves in those situations, we look at little annoyances and we just get annoyed by them rather than just That's go, right. okay, well, let's just solve this. Let's just fix yeah. it or let's just look at it from a different perspective and let's just move on. And I think there's a really powerful lesson right there. So, mate, before we do any more, because I want to come back, and I know you're a bit sure. resistant to talk about it because you've probably spoken about it ad nauseum, but there's That's one right. specific – I know you have, but I think there's oh, – I love the story, mate, and it's such a powerful, powerful message wrapped up in the story – but we're going to get people to hang on and we're going to come back after a break and talk more about it. So we'll be back shortly. Be inspired, be engaged, get motivated and make real change in your life and the people around you. Andrew Jobling knows how to inspire. On stage, he's riveting and engaging. Andrew is helping audiences around the world live their best life. Book him for a face-to-face -face or an online event. Go to andrewjobling.com.au to find out more. All right, young man. I know you are resistant to talk about it, but I'm going to drag it out of you again anyway. <laughs> Back in, what year was it? 2009. Was it 12 years ago? Mate, that is That's just fine. crazy. So I've known you for at least 12 years, but you did an event in Alaska called the Iditarod Trail Invitational. Which was, That's a, correct. which was a bike ride. The world, I'm just reading, mate, the world's longest running winter ultra marathon. But it was on a bike, correct? Yeah, that's right. 
So you can do it on skis also, and oh, okay. But, so you can do but, it. But, oh, right. So you can do it on bike, on foot, or on skis. So you that's can, right. And you chose to do it on a bike. That's so right. Give us just a bit of a lay of the land, so people listening know what is it, what was involved, what did you have to do? Okay. Well, that, the Iditarod Trail is a commemoration of uh, basically the, there was the town of Nome, which is about sixteen hundred kilometers from the starting point of the Iditarod, was under uh, diphtheria plague. And because it was in midwinter and that they couldn't get supply of vaccination there, I mean, it sounds very familiar nowadays, uh, except that that's a very small place and they couldn't get any vaccination. Eventually, people with dog teams managed to get the serum there. So the trail is basically a commemoration of that event. Um, the Iditarod Trail Invitational, um, you have to qualify for it. So you have to show that you're certifiably insane. Um, well, that's not hard for you. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, there's a number of sections. You can do a 350 mile, which is about 500 kilometers, or you can do the whole autonome, which is about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers, give or take. Temperatures average normally minus 30 to minus 50, so it gets pretty nippy there. And Understatement of you, the year. You can do some drop bags. In two points, you can do drop bags, and you can post yourself stuff to different small communities. I mean, those communities are tiny, like 50 people. 60 people along the way but mostly you carry all your gear with you you have to have full survival gear you know and all everything you need basically once you set up you're on your own it's pretty challenging terrain because you cross a lot of lakes and rivers which are obviously frozen but the biggest danger there is what's called an overflow where because the rivers and lakes are pretty powerful currents what happens is as they freeze over the current actually creates crack in the ice and water seep through the ice onto the surface and create glare ice, basically very, very slippery and dangerous, isn't it? But the biggest problem there is that you can fall through the cracks and then you've got about two minutes to uh, either make it on. So, so you said it gets to between below 30 to below 50. What is the temperature of the water? I'd, I'd guess it'll be just below freezing point. I mean, it's still flowing underneath, so... I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but I mean, it will be below zero. But it's the problem is if you fall in, you actually get warmer for a second because it's a lot warmer than the outside temperature. But as soon as you come out, you freeze immediately all over. Yeah. So you basically get caked in ice because you're going from, say, minus two to minus 40. And it really doesn't take more than a couple of minutes for you to be caked in ice. And then you, you literally can't move. It's like an armor plate. Then, then pretty much it's all over Red Rover, right? It, For most it's people. not comfortable. Yeah. It's not comfortable. <laughs> did you do the full one, the full 1,000 miles? Yes. Yeah, yeah, you did the full, th- of course you did. Well, I've the- done it a few times. I came back and did another one unsupported yep. um, on my own. Yep. So, mate, tell us about your little mishap. Well, I was riding with uh, somebody I met and they were very sick for some reason. They had some stomach bug or something and they couldn't hold the food down that so i was giving them some of my food and cook for them and sent them off ahead so i can catch up with them and there was a section where a few days later a canadian snow machiner got off the trail by mistake in that but they carved a very distinct path and because it's all kind of misty and blizzardy quite often very hard to see i assumed that that was part of the trail and followed that track down it went down to a river and I thought that doesn't make sense to me, but anyhow, it just looked like it was the the thing, you know, the trail itself. Yep. And then, and as I was crossing the river, the ice broke. So in I went. 
bike and all. Wow. So it's about 80, 80, 80 kilo bike because you have a lot of winter survival gear on it. So that was pretty loaded with a lot of stuff. And I basically went straight through the ice and the current was trying to sweep me underneath the ice plates, at which point it would have been game over. Yeah. Um, and I was holding on to the bike just because I knew even if I could get myself out and the bike got swept in, then I'll be dead anyhow because all my gear was on it. So it's one of those moments where, you know, you often hear people have, for some bizarre reason, some extra superhuman strength or something. I managed to lift the bike, although it was very heavy, and throw it onto the bank. I'm not quite sure how I did it. And then what you have is you wear around your neck um, a string with two ice picks, basically designed exactly for those situations because the ice is very slippery. So even if you try and lift yourself up from the water, you can't hang on to things, you'll slip. So you you have like a strap with two ice picks that are designed basically to ram it into the ice and hold yourself up, which is exactly what I did. But then I had that problem that I was icing up mm. immediately. So the only solution was to strip naked, which is not the most comfortable at minus 30. Oh, my gosh. You're in that mind, and this is a really important point here, for a lot of people, they would have panicked, right? Whereas yeah. you were able to... Even though, obviously, it was a pretty horrendous situation and uncomfortable and freezing and there's all this uncertainty, you were still able to keep a level ahead and make the right decisions. That's yeah? correct. The thing is, you know, I mean, obviously, you get an adrenaline rush and you kind of, you're not consciously thinking about what to do, but I guess your life experience and your willpower comes into it and you go into autopilot of survival, obviously, in that, but I don't remember panicking. I just realized that, you know, I got about a minute to get myself out or not. It was a choice, actually, and it wasn't a scary choice. It was just a clear realization that either I'm done there or I'm getting out of there, you know, and I decided that today I'm getting out of there. So I thought I'm going to give it a go and see what happens. And I was lucky. Yeah, I mean, lucky... Really? I'm not sure whether you'd say lucky. I think you were calculated, you were smart, you moved quickly. I mean, you had lots of experience, right? Like, so it wasn't yeah, right. like that was your first thing you've ever done and it was, wow, what do I do now? You had experience that's right. under your belt. So you sort of knew what you needed to do. So I don't know whether luck comes into it so much. I mean, you created your own luck because of the mindset you had. Yes, that's right. So I think it's easy to say, oh, I'm lucky. Well, I I think there's an element of luck. I mean, basically, there are three components to those things. One is life experience and particularly environmental experience. Then the element of luck, I think, to some extent, is always present in all these kind of situations. But the biggest thing, I think, is is willpower. You basically, you know, decide what if, if you are going planning to survive it or not basically. And, you know, going into that race, it's quite clear, as I say, it's it's one of the hardest and longest endurance races in the world. And you're not coming there unprepared. I mean, they won't even let you in. You have to qualify for those things. Yeah. So that's why it's called invitational. The editorial trail invitational. You are invited to participate. Yeah. Okay. So you got the bike out and you got your little picks and you're obviously able to drag yourself out. Yeah. You got your gear off. Yep. And then I took my sleeping bag out and basically, first of all, went in there because I was shivering like crazy, obviously. And then I basically decided the next thing I needed to do was to dry my clothes. 
and hang them on the clothesline. A, it wasn't a clothesline, and B, it wasn't really. The dryer. Comfortable. Put them in the dryer, mate. So I just decided I know it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm going to wear them one piece at a time inside my sleeping bag and dry them with my body heat to the extent that I could. I mean, you know, it's never going to be dry. And I was also very cognizant of the fact that by doing that, my sleeping bag is going to get wet. But I couldn't see any choice in it because that's the only gear I had uh, so far as clothing. I had some spare underclothing in that, but that wasn't going to work. So I basically spent the day just shivering inside my sleeping bag and drying my clothes to the extent that I could. So they were damp, but not soaking anymore. The problem was that I couldn't even wring the water out because it was already frozen about three minutes after I got out. So they were basically stiff. So it was like a suit of armor. So it was quite an interesting day uh, and night. I made coffee, of course. Of course. Um, and then just spent the rest of the day and the night shivering. But it was fine. It was fine. You know, it wasn't comfortable, but I, I know what to expect. And basically went with that. And then I realized I'm going to get the hell out of there because I was obviously in the wrong place. Yeah. So then I had to basically figure out because the way I was following the trail was down a quite a steep slope into the river, which made me think from the beginning that that was not something didn't feel quite right, but it looked like it was the trail because of the tracks. So the first thing I did is I had to figure out how to get up the slope. Um, I couldn't do it just with my shoes and gear in that because it was too slippery, you know. Um, so what I did is I took the pedals off the bike because they're serrated. Yep. And I, I strapped the pedals to my, my shoes so I could Ingenuity. use them as to, Wow. Talk to, about to solution. Climb up the slope. Yeah. So that's how I got up that slope. And that. the problem was, as I said, holding an 80-kilo bike. So it took me about six hours to get up this slope that normally I would probably do in about 15 minutes. And so that was quite a big effort and that was enough for the day. So I got myself to the top of the ridge uh, above the river and decided that I'm going to dig a snow cave and go in because the weather was getting worse and things were starting to get interesting weather-wise and there was a lot of ice and snow blowing around. So I just spent the rest of my energy digging a snow cave. So... That's quite comfortable to be in the snow cave because you sheltered from the wind, so the risk of hypothermia is less, and it's actually quite nice and warm because you know there's no, it's the wind that's really the problem. That you know the the still temperature I think was minus 25 or something, but with wind chill factor it goes down to minus 50, minus 60. So I knew I had to get out of there. And what I did is I had some Gatorade with me. And I figured out by now some people will figure out that I'm not, not arriving where I should be arriving. And I thought they might try and find me with an airplane or something. So I did a couple of big circles of Gatorade around my snow cave. So that'll be visible from above. But nobody appeared. So I went to sleep. Next morning, more Gatorade. Nothing. So I started to basically you know, drag the bike. Now, by overnight, there was a lot of snow falling. So by now, the snow was pretty much chest high, fresh snow, which is very difficult to walk. So I, I lifted the bike and pushed it forward and dumped it, then did two steps, lifted the bike. That was another nine hours of that. I probably covered, I don't know, three or four kilometers. I wasn't going anywhere in a hurry. Um, and it's quite exhausting because you're just basically constantly lifting and sinking and falling over and you know, it's it's frustrating, but it's the only way to get out. So and I know what you I had to do, mate. Yep. So I spent another day doing that. Um, I heard some airplanes going 
sort of in the neighborhood and I wasn't sure if they were just flights, you know, fun flights or something or touring flights, but nobody came over me. And um, so there was another night built a new snow cave, made more coffee. You know, I didn't have that much food because I gave it to that guy a few days earlier, assuming I will catch up with him, you know, kind of in a few hours. And so that was probably a, a, a slightly overconfidence in my calculation. But, you know, that's, I learned that for future reference. And then on, I think, the third or fourth day, a plane flew over me, at which point I had a lot of Gatorade circles around me. And they spotted me. And I decided not to wave because sometimes that can be mistaken for, hi, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. So I just stood there and sprayed Gatorade. <laughs> now, that was not so simple because I had to melt a lot of water from the ice to boil it so I can have water to mix with the Gatorade. And that, so that was kind of an hour yeah. of fun just to get the bottle of Gatorade. But they spotted me and they flew over. And, and it actually was a couple of people I met a few days earlier in a place called uh, Shell Lake, which is part of the route. And for some reason, they took a liking to me. I have never met them before in that, but they decided that something was wrong and they're going to come and look for me. And I think because they they knew, because they had to rescue that Canadian guy, they knew that there was a problem with the trail. So they figured out where I might be. Um, and they flew over and they threw off the plane, they threw the, the pilot's flight book with the grid reference, basically my location says, don't move, stay there, we got your grid reference and we'll be coming with snow machines. The problem was that they threw it off the airplane and I had to follow that object and I realized what they were doing because it got immediately buried in the snow about 200 meters from me and that because obviously they can't be accurate. So I sort of had to swim through the snow and find that sort of about under about a meter and a half of snow. So took a nice dive and another cold shower found that waited and about three hours later they arrived at which time i had coffee ready for them of course and you did you were <laughs> thinking about other people thinking about that's right you know catering and, and the coffee everybody that's right i said how are you going and they said are you dead yet and i said no i'm quite fine thank you so they helped me with the bike they took me to a winter lodge which is about 50 kilometers away where the you know they they checked me for frostbites and thing. I just had some frost nip on me and that, and they gave me a nice big meal, and everything was fine. Wow, what a story, mate! And look, let me ask you this question: When you explain it, you know you're so matter of fact, and yeah, I did this and I did that. But at any point in that journey, did you fear that you weren't going to make it out? I thought there was a good possibility because I knew, you know, if if that lasts ten days, you know, I can drink. I can melt snow as long as I have fuel. I was running very low on water, on uh, food. So I basically had few bars and things. So I basically divided them with my little knife and then basically um, just rationed it. And But I figured out that 10 days is my limit. Also because it was very, very cold. Yep. Uh, and more and more snow was falling. So I knew that even just trying to get out of there, progressing you know, a bit at a time would be so exhausting which it was. So I figured out that, you know, there's a good chance that I won't make it out of there, but I wasn't going to give up. That's awesome, mate. I love it. Let's have a quick break and we'll come back and we'll summarize a little bit. Be back shortly. Fitness is an essential piece of the wellness puzzle. First step, finding someone to help you on your fitness journey. But finding a personal trainer or class you love isn't always easy. That's where Fitty comes in. 
Fitty is the app to help you discover trainers and classes near you. Find one you love and connect. Booking session times or classes has never been easier with Fitty's unique live calendar view system. Download the Fitty app in the App Store or Google Play today. Mate, that's an incredible story of survival. It really is. And I would say, I mean, if 100 people found themselves in the same situation, there wouldn't be many of them that survived that, honestly. Well, I mean, I think people go through very challenging situations in other ways. You know, you look at refugees, you look at war zones, you look at, you know, people with, you know, losing their jobs and economic hardships. And that I, I think this is just one example of a challenge. I don't think it's more or less than any other no. challenges, just a different way of looking at life. I agree. You mentioned before the break, you weren't going to give up. So in your mind, you were going to do everything. And I think there's a really powerful lesson there because I think, in a lot of cases, when we come up with some sort of challenge in life, it's easy to go, oh, I can't do it, it's too hard, it's not working, and give up. Yeah. I mean, for you, the consequence of giving up was your life. So obviously, you had probably more motivation to keep going than people that are just trying to write a book or just trying to yeah. get a job or whatever. Yeah. The, the cost was a lot higher, but still that I will keep going until, I will until, is a really powerful message that I think I want people to get. What are some of the other things that helped you get through that, mate? I think, first of all, is recognizing that the environment or the space around me was not hostile. You know, often people think like wilderness is kind of dangerous or whatever in my, in, you know, in the context of what we are talking about. I never see it that way. I think it's just a world that I'm entering and that world has its own rules and I have to learn the rules. And, you know, some of them you learn the hard way and some of them you just learn by being attuned and, and respectful and humble. And I think that humility often is a huge part of survival because you understand that, you know, getting frustrated or angry or outraged because things don't go the way you like them to be is too much a conditioning of the world we live in, which is, you know, rules and regulations and that. You enter wilderness area, you just nobody. You're not even invited in that sense, you know, in a positive sense, but you're not even invited. You chose to be there and therefore you better play by the rules. And those rules are just different than what you're used to in your day-to-day -day life. There's rules in everything, right? Like every, That's right. As a human being, there are rules. To be successful and happy in life, there are rules. To be healthy, That's right. there are rules. So I think you're right, mate, and you're right. The thing that stops so many people from following the rules is ego. And you talked about yeah, humility right. Absolutely. and the power of just surrendering and saying, okay, I'm in an environment that there are rules here. I just need to humble myself and follow those rules. And, them. and try and be attentive enough to understand them. You see, I mean, the, the environment doesn't care if you're there or not. You know, the animals don't care. The mountains don't care. If you're there, you're there by choice and that. And the mountains have their own way of doing things. And we often find it difficult to accept and understand them. So therefore, we might get frustrated or intimidated. I just don't find it intimidating. I just find it listening in every, every sense of the word and in every sense of your body, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, is a way to basically learn something new and as much about yourself as the environment. No, you know, that's, that's a huge lesson, you yeah. know, that every journey that goes out has to go an equal distance in. You know, so basically, however far you go, you also should go very far, the same distance inside yourself. Oh, that's awesome. I love that message. Just listen and learn and be aware and take it in. 
and look at your environment, but also mm. go within and see how you fit mm. within that environment. I think there's that's some right. incredible lessons there. I think that's awesome. So, mate, I know you didn't want to spend too much time on Iditarod, but we've spent probably more time than you wanted that's to. Okay. But I think it's awesome because, A, you're here to tell the story. I'm pretty impressed that you're still around and, and what you did <laughs> and how you did it and just the calmness that you just obviously you made logical choices. And again, this is where it's so easy to get distracted by the environment, by the harshness, by the cold, and then worry rather than just narrow your world. Say, okay, this is where I'm at. What can I do? What do I do next? Next step, next step. And that's what you did. You were very logical with it. And then again, when we find ourselves in chaos, it's easy to look at the chaos and listen to the noise rather than zoom in and go, okay, here's my situation. What's my next step? And you did that so beautifully with the decision in your heart that I'm going to survive this, I'm going to get out of this, I'm going to keep going. And I, I mean, I think, and sorry to cut you, I, I think one of the things is obviously that experience comes into it because, for example, snow is a very good blotting uh, element. So if you're soaking wet, although it sounds illogical to roll yourself in the snow, it's actually very good if you're soaking wet having just fallen through a river. That's the first thing I did is roll myself because that, that'll bloat a lot of the water from my clothing. And it did, you know, and then I stripped. But, um, you know, for example, knowing or remembering that that is something you can do immediately, that just comes with experience. I'm sure there's people who know a lot about other things that I have no clue about who will know what to do in a given situation yep. where I would lack that knowledge. It's about focusing what you can do, not focusing right. on what you don't have. See, we tend to focus on what's wrong. Oh, this is terrible. This is horrible. Absolutely. Rather than go, okay, what can I do? What's my next That's step? That's right. And when you ask yourself, exactly, when you ask yourself that question, well, what's my next step to survive? The answer Mm. often comes right. And you talked a lot about, a lot of it is just coming to you. It's sort of intuitive. You know, you talked about superhuman strength. Well, our body, we are equipped with survival. We've got survival in our DNA. We've just got to Mm. access it. And we access it by simply asking the right questions and allowing the answers to come to us. You obviously didn't plan a 10-step process if you fall through no. the ice right that wasn't something you had a written plan and you'd rehearsed it that's right you fell through the ice and it was okay what do i need to do and yep. you just asked the question and you listened and the answers came to you and you just took it one step one step one step one step forward you know two steps forward one step back but you kept moving and and that's why you're mm-hmm. here to talk about it. and again wow what an incredible lesson that is we've got it inside of we've all got this incredible resource inside of us we've just Absolutely. got to tap into it yeah, I think really, as you say, you know, a lot of people just don't get exposed, don't allow themselves to be exposed to situations that actually demand of them to discover what's how much more is inside them because they're so relying on other people or other organization or the government department or anybody, I don't know, to come and help them and solve their problem rather than think, well, what is it that I can do? Sometimes there's nothing you can do. Well- but oftentimes there's plenty you can do. Absolutely. And, I mean, like this perfect example of what's going on right now, I mean, we're relying right. on the government to solve all our problems and hence there's so much now there's riots and violence and stuff because people are frustrated because they've that's given right. responsibility to, to right. another body that's not giving them what they think they want instead of going, okay, well, this is not a great scenario. What can I do? What's mm. my role? What's my responsibility? We tend to so easily pass That's responsibility right. to someone else or something else and then complain that it's not giving us what we want. Well, come on. Yeah. The only way we're going to get what we want is go after it. You know, yeah. we have to take That's control right. and take responsibility, which I love. Anyway, yeah. mate, what I want to do before we wrap up, I want to talk a bit more about Hunt 1000 because I'm just looking at what you've sent me. 
It's a thousand k's. Is it Melbourne to Canberra or Canberra to Melbourne? That's right. So Melbourne you're you're Melbourne to Canberra, and you're going to thousand k's. It's going to take you up to a couple of weeks. Seventy percent unpaved. Less than fifty percent of people will finish the race, and the total ascent is twenty thousand meters, which is three times Mount Everest. Yeah. Which is it's actually a little bit on. more than 20. It's about 23,000, yeah. It's just to add a bit more fun to the equation. When's that start, mate? When when do you head off on that adventure? It really depends on our friend COVID. Um, it depends if they're opening it. Because we're going basically from Melbourne through all the Victorian Alps into Kosciuszko National Park and up through the park and Jagangal into Canberra. So that just depends if they're... Technically, it's in 20-something, around the 20th of November. The finish, you have to be at the finish by the 4th of December. What would you estimate you would do that, in? all being well, not falling down a mountain or getting eaten by a grizzly bear or having a tree fall on your head? What would you foresee? You would... 10 to 11 days. Okay. Yeah. It depends how much pushing versus riding you have to do because I know there's some very steep thing that will take you hours to do. You know, as I said, the same as in the snow, you, you might spend five hours going three kilometres or something where it's something I can ride in 10 minutes, you know, if I'm riding. So um, yesterday I spent three hours pushing my bike up a gully to some silly, silly point only only to get all the way up so I can go all the way down again. Um, yeah, but coming down but, is much more fun, right? Well, some sections were too steep for me to come down. I did a slider bike, basically a slide with the bike down. Um, that was actually harder than going up. Yeah, I can imagine it would be. You've got to work yeah. against gravity. And you got a 50-kilo bike pushing you down, yep. you know. Yeah, for sure. So, mate, if people are interested to find out more, get into your head and, and find out more, you write blogs and, and you've got some stuff, and I know you've got a, a book on the way. How do people find out more about you and the stuff you're doing? Probably through you. Now through me. Okay. All right. So if you're listening to that, if, if you want to get in contact with you at any stage and find out more about what this amazing man's doing or get in his head, just contact me. Send me an email. So you're not on social media. I am, but I don't really want to start too many conversations with people I don't know. But I'm more than happy to answer questions and help with gear or any suggestions or even mental preparation, but I'd rather you filter it first. Okay, you know? I'll, I will filter. Uh, I'll do the I, have, I have a full-time job, so... Fair enough. Mate, thank you so much for sharing your, your stories and your inspiration and your, the lessons and the wisdom that you've gained over 61 years of adventuring. Just leave you with one thought. Please. Um, or a quote from one of my favourite authors, Tom Robbins. I thought you were going to say your favourite author is Andrew Jobling. I'm staying correct. My second, second favorite, favorite author, Tom Robbins, who said it's never too late to have a happy childhood. It's one of my biggest um, lines that I usually think about when, when I think you can always, you know, find positives in the past. Never too late to have a happy childhood. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, thanks, mate. Appreciate your time. No problem. And look forward to catching up again Good soon. Good to talk to you. That was a pretty powerful, fabulous conversation, wasn't it? I listened to Yeah as he tells, just so matter of fact, that experience in a frozen river with an 80 kilo bike. I think I would have gone within a few minutes. I would have been out of there. I would have been up in heaven looking down on the rest of the earth very, very quickly. But what an incredible story of just how he was able to be in the moment, narrow his focus ask himself the question, what do I do now? He was in control. He was able to block out all of those fears and distractions and things that would have 
taken many, many people out. So that's a really powerful story. But his whole journey in life over the last 61 years has led him to some pretty wonderful experiences and some incredible lessons about living a happy, healthy, wonderful, purposeful life. So thank you very much, Yeah, for that. If you want to contact Yee, as you heard, you can do it through me. So you can just flick me an email to andrew at andrewjobling.com.au if you would like to ask him any questions or get any advice around equipment or ideas around outdoor adventures, you can do that. And I would like to just also, as I wrap up, thank my sponsors for the podcast, Fiddy and Pietro and the guys there. Thanks, mate. I appreciate everything you're doing not just to help me get my message of joyful longevity out to the world, but also what you're doing to help people get moving, get healthy, get happy in their life. Another week down, and as I promise every single week, that was another incredible conversation with a pretty impressive man, and I'll be back again next week with another one. I will be here. I will continue coming because I know this podcast is making a difference in one life for sure. That's mine. Hopefully yours. And hopefully anyone that you feel would benefit from this, you'll be sharing. So thank you so much for being here. Look forward to being with you next week. My name's Andrew Jobling. This is the Wellness Puzzle Podcast.